there are many reasons why we might be fearful of what men can do to us, and that's certainly something that we need to be mindful of, but never to be fearful of. We can trust our God that if it were to come to such a thing as persecution to us directly, that God would give us the grace to endure that which men can do. He's telling his disciples these things in this passage that we've been looking at because he's sending them out by twos, the twelve apostles, to various towns and villages and cities in the Galilean region to bear witness of the truth that Jesus had been teaching them. And so he's been giving them instructions on how to perform that which he is asking of them and to trust God that He, God, will enable them to do everything that Jesus asks of them. In fact, Jesus, immediately upon deciding on who the twelve would be, that would be called His apostles, He gave them the power, Mark, Matthew tells us, and also Mark and Luke tell us the same, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and even to raise the dead over all manner of disease and sickness. That's great power the power that he had been manifesting in his ministry in both Galilee and in Judea by this time, and they are now going to be given that same power. This is an amazing thing for the disciples to be available for the fact that Jesus is going to use them in such a marvelous, fantastic, powerful way as this. But it comes with a cost. He warns them, not everybody's going to receive what you have to share. Not everybody's going to embrace what you do. In fact, he had told them that if you happen to go into a town or a city and there's nobody there that receives you, then you should just leave the town or the city and take off your sandals and shake off the dust from your sandals and move on to the next community. Even individually, if you go into a home and you do not find the peace of Christ reception of the Word of God in that home, you don't stay there. You go to another home until you can find somebody that does seem to be receptive to the Word of God. And so he's told told his disciples all of these various things in this chapter 10 in which we find ourselves still of Matthew's Gospel and we'll continue in the latter part of that Gospel sometime during this morning's message. But I also wanted to kind of append what I said with regard to the fear of God last week. Because it's important to all of us as believers to know that we have, all of us who have named Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have great reward for our confession of our faith. We have the promise of eternity with God, eternal life everlasting life, abundant life, life in His presence, the great manifold blessings of God as children of God, joint heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God. We are most blessed who believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross. That's a wonderful thing. But Jesus was warning His disciples that if anyone denies Him, He also will deny them. Now those are very, very frightful words if you think about it. But what does it mean? Well, we have to realize when Jesus was talking about confessing Him or denying Him, He was talking about 
a lifelong decision, a fixed decision in the mind of those who either confess Christ or who deny Christ. You can never take it as just in a single event that might take place in one's life. Oh, I denied Christ. I don't deserve. No, you don't want to think that because it's just not simply true. You have room for forgiveness. If you've been in a situation where you've been reluctant to share the gospel and you knew that it was burning in your heart, but you just couldn't bring it out and you feel guilty. Look, that's forgivable. I need to remind us, myself and you, that Peter, when he was following Jesus, watching all of those miracles, listening to all the wonderful words of truth that Jesus proclaimed, There came a time when Jesus asked a question of him and all of the disciples, and he said, who do men say that I am? And they got thinking about it, and several responses were given. Well, some think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, or that prophet. But then he asked directly, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who came up with an answer. Peter usually spoke first, but this time it was good. Because he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, Simon, Barjona, Cephas. Those are all names of Peter. Peter, he said. Your flesh didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. That must have been a great, awesome blessing for Peter to hear those words. God the Father spoke through me? Wow, that's awesome. I'm in. I don't know if those were the thoughts that he had, but I think I might be considering those kinds of things if I were ever told by Jesus, the Father spoke to you today. I'd love to hear those words. Not much longer after that, though. They were in the garden. Jesus had been praying. The disciples had been sleeping. But during that time in the garden, Jesus told his disciples, all of you will run. Nobody will stand by his side when the time came for the betrayer to arrive. And Peter stood out and said, Lord, if they do... That's them. I'm not going to do that. I'm with you. I'm going to stand by your side no matter what. Well, Peter, Jesus said, before the clock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Three times denying Jesus? No way. That's impossible. I'll never deny you. Not much long after that, Peter was in the garden. Jesus is in the house of Caiaphas. And sure enough, somebody comes along and says, Hey, you're one of them. What are you talking about? I don't know who you're talking about. I know nothing about this. Second time, I I know that you were with him. I don't know the man. Cock crowed. Last time, Surely you are one of them because your speech betrays you. No, I don't know the man. He began to swear, curse, and commit terrible sin in his denial of his having even been with Jesus or wanting anything to do with Jesus. He completely denied the Lord and the cock 
crowed again. And then we're told Peter went out and wept bitterly. He denied his Lord. Is that the end of his witness as a believer in Jesus Christ? You all know the story. Fifty days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes down on the church, baptizes all of them, including Peter, and Peter speaks words of truth, confessing Christ as the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only one who could be able to save anyone from their sins. And 3,000 souls were saved in that day because Peter became a great spokesman for the Lord, a faithful servant of God. Yes, he denied the Lord, but the Lord used him still. The Lord forgave him, and so will he do for all of us. So don't ever think that if you have named the name of Jesus, you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that He is Lord, that is salvation. And you can trust that He will keep you until the very end. Unless, of course, you don't want that. I know there are those who have said, I tried Jesus and it didn't work for me. Well, they didn't really believe with their heart. They may have voiced a prayer. They may have said the sinner's prayer. They may have gone to a church for several weeks in a row thinking, well, this is cool, nice people, and lots of really pretty women around. Maybe it's a good place for me to be. But they had the wrong reason for being there, and they did not stay because they did not know what God had done for them. Because it hadn't entered into their heart to receive the word of truth. It was superficial and intellectual acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus Christ was a great prophet, that Jesus Christ was a great teacher, but to accept Him as divine Son of God who can save you from your sins, that just did not happen in their lives. And therefore, they went on thinking, well, this church thing isn't for me. It's a crutch. (laughs) Yes, it is a crutch. It is. It's more than a crutch. It's a hospital Church is a place where you can come to receive forgiveness of sins and be delivered from all of your infirmities, all of your diseases, all of your sins, all of your troubles, all of your sorrows, and they will continue to come even after you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you and I who have come to Christ and believed in His power to save us and raise us up one day from the dead to live with Him in heaven for all eternity, we have a great great benefit in knowing that we are His and He will never leave us nor forsake us. We talked last time about the fact that we should fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And we talked about the word that Jesus used in that statement that He had made in Matthew chapter 10, verse 31, where He used the word Gehenna, Gehenna is a word that they were very familiar with because it was right outside Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom, just below the city, where they burned trash. And there was fire burning in that dump every day, 24-7. It was an apt picture of what Jesus was conveying with regard to this thing that we call hell. Now, there are some who say, no, don't think about hell as being 
anything to worry about. If you don't go to heaven, it's just the end of your life. And hell is just nothing more than an annihilation. You don't exist anymore. That's what they would tell you. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus spoke about hell as being an everlasting torment. He spoke of, Jesus, of hell as being something that is outer darkness, something that is eternal. It's worth remembering those words of Jesus so that we who believe can convey to those who don't that there is really no reason for them to continue where they are with regard to Jesus because if they do, they are going to suffer an eternity without Him and it will not be a pleasant experience. Oh, my friends will all be there. No, that's not true at all. They may be there, but you won't know them as your friends. You'll be in torment. That's what we should be telling them. Now, there are many misconceptions that are related to this concept of heaven and hell. And one of them I just mentioned, that some say that hell is annihilation. It is not. When Jesus said destroy, it is a ruination of what should have been. Heaven, on the other hand, eternal life, is promised to all believers. When a believer dies, he goes to be with the Lord. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul tells us that when you die, you will leave this body behind. Your body will go to the grave or be burned into some form of dust, whether it's through cremation or the natural process, and then your soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. The Lord is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. That means that this is where we are all destined to go who believe. We're going directly from this body into heaven. Our souls are eternal. You could say, you are a living soul. Much better than to say, I have a soul, because you are a soul, and that soul is eternal. When Jesus came on this earth to save us from our sins, died on that cross, raised from the dead, He made a way for us to be born again. He made a way for us to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Simply by faith in what He has done, we have been made new. We are new creations in Christ. We are born again. When Adam in the garden sinned, he was a man who existed in a body like ours. He was a living soul because that's what God did for him when he created him. Out of the dust, he breathed on him and he became, what? A living soul. But he also had another component of his existence that was what drove him, and that was a spirit. So you could say that Adam was a triune being. He was body, soul, and spirit. When he committed that sin in the garden, God specifically said, when you do that, you will surely die. Well, Adam continued to live, and he lived for 930 years outside of the garden, 
He was suffering the consequences of his sin, but he still existed. He did not die. At least his body did not. His soul is eternal, but he lost that one thing that was so greatly important, his spirit. And it was his spirit that made him aware of his sin. When he died, his spirit died. And he became aware of the body instead of the spirit realm. He no longer walked with God in the cool of the day. That was now missing from his existence, from his experience. So we all who have descended from Adam must also be in the same state. We have a body which we all can look at, we can see, we can touch, we can know that we exist because our bodies are real. But we have an eternal soul that is who we are. And when we are born again, our spirit is made alive. Like Adam was in the garden, now we also have that same privilege to declare we are triune beings in the image of God. And that is a truth that God has spoken of many places in the Word of God. In fact, we are His ambassadors in the world, and our job as ambassadors are to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has done these great things on our behalf, and as ambassadors, He is transforming us into His image. The image of a triune being. We are like Him in that sense. Born again means you are now a triune person. A body, soul, and spirit. So you have great promises that have been manifest in your life because of what you have believed when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that gives us the promise of heaven. So we don't need to fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, because we have the promise of eternal life in heaven with Him. Now, not every church teaches these things. There are some, even in Protestant churches, very liberal churches, who don't really think of heaven and hell as real places. They're spiritualized somehow. They're ethereal. They're not real. They're not something you can plan on experiencing. It's just fluffy stuff to help you in this life. But their philosophy is simply like the Greek philosophies. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They are wrong. I don't want to pick on the Catholic Church, but I seem led in that direction this morning to at least briefly talk about something that they teach, which is an erroneous doctrine, to say the least. And that's the doctrine of purgatory. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory states, basically, that when a Catholic dies, he or she goes into purgatory. It's a holding tank, if you will. And some might say, well, isn't that what you were describing last week as Hades? Not right. Not at all right. They are not the same. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory basically was something that was developed in the early 12th century. And it was based upon what we call an apocryphal book, a book that is not considered part of the Scripture, although the Catholic Church deems it to be part of Scripture. The majority of churches do not. 
It was written around the time of the Maccabees, between 400 and the time of Christ, around 1 B.C., 2 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood when Jesus was born. But those books, and there are more than one, were written and they were not considered to be canon by the Jewish believers, nor the other Christians other than the Catholic Church and a few minor groups other than them. But this book, Second Maccabees, talks about a place where believers go and they can be prayed out of that place into heaven. The idea is the Catholic believer may have sinned and died still unforgiven and so he goes to purgatory, she goes to purgatory and has to wait until somebody prays for them to get them out of purgatory or worse, pays the church an indulgence to get them out of purgatory. And that indulgence became a real profit maker for the Catholic Church. People would pay indulgences to get their loved ones out of purgatory and guaranteed by the Catholic Church into heaven. It's a terrible doctrine. It's a false doctrine. It is not the same as Hades. You cannot get out of Hades if you go to Hades. There's no way that you can be prayed out of that place. If you go into Hades, now that Christ has been raised from the dead, only unbelievers go there. And if you are an unbeliever and you then die, you are going to go into that place called Hades. In the Hebrew language, it's Sheol. But it's a place of the dead, now only occupied by unbelievers. And I say now because when Christ was raised from the dead, the Bible tells us he led captivity captive. He took all of those who were in Hades that were in that section of Hades called Abraham's bosom, that place that Jesus referred to as paradise, and he brought them with him when he was raised from the dead into heaven. They are there now. And everyone who has died since Jesus' resurrection from the dead, who has believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, goes to be with Him. Jay is now in heaven in the presence of his Lord because he confessed Christ as a Savior. He believed in Jesus for forgiveness of his sins. He accepted that salvation offer, and he is a child of God, and he is there enjoying the benefits of his having confessed Christ. But there are those who will deny Christ to the very end. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Chapter 10, verse 29, he says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a whole, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? How much worse punishment? The implication in that statement is that there are degrees of punishment. Not in heaven. There is no punishment to those who obtain eternal life in Christ. But to those who are in Hades, they are suffering. They are suffering torment. They will never get out of Hades until the day that the Lord calls them out of Hades. And that will not happen until after the millennial reign of Christ, where it tells us in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, that the dead in Christ will rise first. That happens before the tribulation period. 
And then, at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be a judgment of those who are still on the earth, and Jesus is going to separate them into two categories, goats and sheep. And the sheep will enter into the kingdom that is about to be gone, to begin rather, for a thousand years. They will reign with Christ, be there with Christ. They will, in their mortal bodies still, repopulate the earth. The goats, on the other hand, will be cast into eternal damnation where they are going to be tormented. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20 verse 10. That's at the end of the tribulation, or rather the millennial reign of Christ, Well, Satan will have been bound for a thousand years, but he's going to be released. And all those people who were still in their mortal bodies during that thousand-year reign of Christ will have another opportunity to make a stand either for Christ or against. And Satan's going to be released, and he will persuade a large number of mortal souls to rebel against Jesus And it tells us that God is going to pour out fire from heaven and will consume them. And then, after that, the judgment will come. The judgment that's noted in the book of Revelation as the great white throne judgment. That is a judgment of unbelievers. And it tells us that the dead will be raised up. Those who were not followers of Christ will be among them. It tells us death and Hades will let those go who were contained by them. But Hades, again, is only a place where unbelievers now reside. They are in torments. So what's the purpose? Though they are in torment, it's, as I described last time, like a penitentiary, a local jail. Now the judgment is going to be made officially, and they will then be cast into outer darkness, They will be cast into what Jesus refers to as a lake of fire. The devil will also be cast into that same place. That is the end game as far as those who are against Christ. Note that in verse 10 of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, he mentions that the beast and the prophet, the beast and the antichrist, are already there. They are already in the lake of fire. And it tells us that they still are there. For a thousand years they have been there, according to the Word of God, and they have not been consumed by that great lake of fire. It is a permanent place of torment. And they will remain there and be tormented there forever and ever. So purgatory makes no sense from a biblical point of view. Those who die in Christ are with Him in heaven now, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Those who die without Christ are in Hades now, but they will be removed from Hades, and in the last great white throne judgment, they will be cast into outer darkness for all eternity. That's the second death. That is eternal. That is everlasting. That is forever torment. Where their worm dies not, where their quenching of the thirst can never take place. Now, we all know people some family members, neighbors, fellow workers who don't know these truths 
who have not yet turned to Christ because they've not been able to bring the thought of eternally living either with God or outside of God, they can't seem to grasp the truth. They're blinded by the things that they have heard that are contrary to the Word of God. But that doesn't make the Word of God less true because it is the only truth. And all I can tell you is that we need to continue to pray for our family members who have turned from this, who have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's not yet too late for them until they take their last breath. But while they have life, they have opportunity to believe and receive the gift that is offered to them, as you and I have done. So don't give up on them. But realize that if they don't change, they will not be in the presence of God. And it will not be a time of rejoicing for them. That's why it's so important for us to be concerned about them. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's who hell was originally made for. The devil and his angels. Those that followed Satan in the rebellion, way back in the beginning of that rebellion, where God had already judged them. But he's given Satan the opportunity to remain as the God of this world, to try to convince anyone to follow after him, to believe the lie that he is propagating. And there are many who have swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. Jesus, in that passage that I just read in Matthew 25, is speaking of that time that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the millennial reign where he separates the goat from the sheep. And he has just told the sheep that because they have done good things for his people, the Jews, on behalf of them, just simply because they did good things, like giving them a cup of water or visiting them when they were in prison or clothing them, then you have a reward for doing so. You now are able to enter into the kingdom. And they would. They will. But to those on the left, the goats, he says, you didn't give them water to drink. You didn't clothe them or feed them. You didn't visit them in prison. And because of that, because you refused to do good things on behalf of the people of God, their destiny is everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They did not receive Christ. They would not receive Christ. They just simply could not bring themselves to believe in a loving God. And as a result, their destiny has been determined, not by God, but by themselves. They make a choice. All people do. You make a choice for heaven or you make a choice for hell. And one or the other, whether you realize it or not, will be the destiny of your soul. He says in verse 46 of that same chapter in Matthew 25, And these, the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. Everlasting punishment, righteousness, eternal life. He uses the same emphasis of forever in that one verse. 
There are dozens more scriptures that we can look to that talk about everlasting life, everlasting death, eternal life, eternal death. Forever is a long time. Forever is forever. You can't even begin to fathom the length of time that is being discussed when Jesus says eternal life, everlasting life. You know the word infinite, but you can't grasp its full meaning. It's beyond our understanding. We are limited in our physical existence to time-space. 24-hour days, 7-day weeks, 365 or so days in a year. We live about 70 years and then we die. And if by reason of strength, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 90, we might live until 80. That's all you got. It's a generality, but that's basically what the writer of the Psalm 90 has declared. And it is basically true. We have a limited time. Over and over in the book of Psalms, we read like, we are a vapor. We're here like the grass, and grass withers and dies, and so we are like that as well. We don't know eternity. We can't understand eternity. But we can know that it's been promised. And it's far better than what we are now experiencing. Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel spoke of that very same fact, the resurrection unto life for those who believe. He said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament didn't understand fully the impact of Christ's coming upon the earth to save souls. They didn't understand the exact means by which God was going to make these things so. They only knew that there was a destiny for the righteous and a destiny for the unrighteous. And they were not the same. Their new revelation comes in the New Testament and reveals much more for our benefit with regard to those things that have been described by Daniel in chapter 12, verse 2. John chapter 5, verse 28 says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. He's speaking of Himself, the Messiah. We will hear His voice. And we will come forth. Those who hear will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, Jesus distinguishes between the two options that we have before us. Righteous or unrighteous? Resurrection of life? Resurrection of condemnation? There is no purgatory. No way that you can maybe partially get into heaven. It does not work that way. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But there is Hades. It is a resting place of all those who have died before Christ. Everyone went into Hades. Some went into torment, and some went into the place known as Abraham's bosom. The righteous were there. And when Jesus died on the cross, he went into Hades, and we're told that he came from there after having proclaimed the gospel message and led captivity captive. He emptied out that section of Hades, which was known as paradise, or Abraham's bosom. And now again, all that are left are those who have been without Christ and will be for all eternity separated from God. Oh, they're only in Hades until the end of the millennial reign of Christ when the right throne judgment takes place. They'll take 
one last stand before God at that time. And the books will be opened, Revelation tells us, and they will be judged according to the things in those books. They will be shown the reason why they cannot enter into His presence. And that is the only place where they, all of them, who have been in Hades for all that many years, will end up standing before Him. And the Bible tells us very clearly that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. They will indeed bow their knee before Him and make that statement, but it will not buy them entrance into the kingdom. The judgment will have already been made by the Lord. They will have to go into their eternal separation from God. That'll be the last time they see His face. That'll be the last time they see anyone ever again. Second death. Lake of fire. Outer darkness. Gehenna. Hell. Eternal torment. Has that sunk in? Now we turn to Matthew's Gospel and we'll end with a brief reading of this passage this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, Peter denied Jesus three times. That's not applicable to you and I as believers with regard to denial. But Titus is a letter that Paul wrote. And in that letter, Paul says this. In chapter 1 of the book of Titus, verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The sinner, the one who does not accept Christ, is being described here. Jesus says of them that if they continue in that denial, they will not enter into the presence of God. They will be denied before my Father who is in heaven. Christ goes on to talk in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute, I thought he was the Prince of Peace. Yes, he is. Wait a minute, I thought the, Gabriel, the, the angel expressed that very fact to the shepherds in the, in, in the day of Christ's birth. They appeared to the shepherds and said, Be of good cheer. God is bringing peace unto men. Well, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So what's he mean by that? Yes, He will one day mandate peace because He is a Prince of Peace. But peace does not come upon the earth until He begins His reign. And that peace will be established. But when He came the first time, it wasn't to bring that peace 
that they were expecting the final kingdom to be established. No, it was instead to bring a sword. And what did he mean by that? Well, he says that in the next several verses. Verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What Jesus was warning his disciples and all of us is that they will hate you because you are Christ's. Jesus has said, if they have hated you, it's because they hate me. And that's the way that will work in many, many of our experiences with our own family members. When we became children of God, we began to proclaim, I've been born again. And relatives, you all, I believe, have at least one or two that looked at you and credulously said, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean you're born again? You're one of those born-again Christians? Get out of here. I don't want to hear anything about it. And they write you off. The Jews were especially subjected to that kind of rejection. If a Jewish man or woman expresses faith in Jesus Christ, it's likely that their family will deny they ever ever, even existed they'll write them off as being already dead. I know somebody in our own fellowship here whose grandmother experienced that very thing. His grandmother was a Jewish woman in a Jewish home. And she became a believer in Jesus Christ and she was taken and cast out from her family. At the age of 18, she was on her own. But she was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and her children became followers of Jesus Christ and her grandson became a follower of Jesus Christ because of her commitment. But her parents, her siblings, rejected her. And so it is. Jesus is saying here, that's going to happen. Expect it. A man of your own household, enemies, because they don't want to believe and because you do. He says in verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is, look, if their rejection of you causes you to turn back to them and forget Christ, then you're not worthy of Him. Stay with Christ. Follow Jesus in spite of the fact that they hate what you have become. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What? Take up your cross. Yes. It's an instrument of death, is it not? Yes. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul recognizes the fact and conveys the fact to all of us that we must die to sin. Be crucified unto Christ. Offer yourselves up as living sacrifices, which is a pleasing thing to God. It's acceptable to Him. Die to sin and live for Christ. Know the blessings that come from making that kind of a commitment that no matter what happens around you or against you or to you, you are His. That's what taking up a cross is. It's not some burden that you carry maybe because of uh, your job or some other thing that might be happening in your life. Oh, I've got this cross to bear. That's not quite what Jesus is referring to here. 
He's referring to death to self. Denial of self. Not self-denial, but denial of self. And there is a difference. Self-denial is saying, well, I'm not going to do this. And the reason I'm not going to do this is because my body will benefit from it. That's self-denial. You're doing something to gain something. Denial of self is, I don't want myself to interfere with my relationship with God. I'm denying my flesh to win salvation. The Gaithers wrote a song long ago. Bill and Gloria Gaither were very well-known singers and writers of gospel music. The chorus of one of the songs they wrote says, I lost it all to gain everything. I died a pauper to become a king. When I learned how to lose, I found out how to win. I lost it all to gain everything. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Lose it in order to gain it. That's what he says. He who finds, verse 39, his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in verse 40 to the end, he talks about rewards for those who commit themselves to confessing Christ. Remember, we started out talking about the fact that there are rewards for those who are going to be saved and entering into the eternity with God. Those rewards are plain and clear, and there are maybe more rewards for some than for others, but each of us who have believed will receive rewards. That's the promise of the Lord God. That's the word that Paul tells us in First and Second Corinthians about the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, where we will be judged not for the sins that we've committed, but for the works that we have done, whether they be of God or not. And those rewards will be meted out based upon what we have done in this body. Not our salvation, but our rewards will be judged. But here in this last few verses, listen what Jesus is saying. He who receives you, receives me. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. He shall by no means lose his reward. That tells me something about the promise of Jesus. It's permanent. He never, ever will let you go. That's good news. That's very, very good news. Rewards. And yes, there are degrees of rewards. If I have told you there are degrees of punishment for those who are without Christ, then you should understand that also there are degrees of reward for those who have received Christ, who have confessed Christ. Jesus tells us very plainly, and in that passage in Matthew's Gospel that I read, talking about the goats, he said just the opposite about the sheep, who were also those to whom he gave a word of encouragement. But not only that, he gave a parable. More than one, but one in particular, he talked about the distribution of talents. That's a monetary value. To very different individuals. To one he gave ten talents. 
To another he gave five. To another he gave one. You could think of it as abilities. And for some, there is more responsibility given because they have greater ability. For some, there is moderate amount of talent given because of their ability. He knows what you and I are all capable of. And he won't push us too hard, too fast, but in just the right way that we might be able to use what he gives us and manifest the wonderful works of God in our life that they all might give glory to God in the end. And so the talents that we are given in that parable, the talents that we're given, he expected them to be utilized to its very fullest. And so the one who was given ten earned ten more. The one who was given five earned five more. But the one who was given one talent thought to himself, well, he's an austere master. And I don't know if I can really do anything with this talent, so I'm just going to bury it. And so when he comes back, I'll give it back to him. And he won't have lost anything because I didn't lose it. I just didn't use it. And Jesus' emphasis in that parable is this. To the one to whom he gave ten and who made ten talents from it, he said, you shall be over ten cities. To the one he gave to that person five talents and that person utilized those five talents and earned five more, he says to that person, you have done well. I'm going to give you five cities to rule over. To the one who had the one talent and did nothing with it, outer darkness. Judgment falls on that one who does not use what God has given him or her. It's plain in that parable that there are different degrees of reward. To one, a greater responsibility given, a greater responsibility that he is rewarded with in the end. There are other places in the Word of God that speak of these very same things. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the Lord, those of us who have received Christ as our, and our Lord and our Savior, we have the promise of eternal rewards, eternal life, abundant life, the freedom of being called children of God, the liberty that we have in Christ is ours through faith. There is no turning back. Follow Him for all your days. And never ever fear what man can do. Never ever be concerned about those things that are coming on in the world today all around us. There is much happening in the world today that is a cause of much fear. Wars and rumors of wars. There are various things that are taking place around the globe that we all should be aware of, but never ever fearful of. Be prepared, not scared. The Lord is coming soon. These are just the beginnings of labor pains. We're in the last days, and there's little time left. And we need to be filled with God's Spirit and willing to be used by the Spirit of the Lord wherever we go with whom we ever come into contact. There must be in us a boldness to proclaim the truth, to live it out. If we can't speak it, do it. Live for Him. Demonstrate your love for Him in all that you do. And as much as in you, be at peace with everyone. Now, they won't necessarily be at peace with you. We've just seen that in this passage that we've looked at today. But listen, people of God, there is precious little time. Precious little time. And you 
all know somebody that needs Christ, that needs to know eternal life is at stake. I want as many as I can possibly tell to be among those that are raised from the dead in the first resurrection. That first resurrection began already with Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. He was the first fruits of that first resurrection. Matthew tells us that when he was raised from the dead, there were others that were also raised from the dead that walked around the city of Jerusalem after his resurrection. That must have freaked everybody out. That's the first resurrection, the first fruits. That is a biblical term that is referring to the wave offering at the beginning of harvest, the first fruits. The rapture of the church is the main harvest. That will happen, well, according to Jewish custom, it happens in the fall. They have a feast for it. The first fruits was Jesus Christ. The rapture is that second larger festival, that larger harvest. And then there's the tribulation period, seven years of trouble, known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time of judgment for all of Christ's rejecting world, and there's going to be one who comes in the name of Christ, a man of peace, who is not really a man of peace at all, but he is filled with Satan. And Satan will be let loose during that period of time and all hell will break loose. It will be a time of great evil such as no man has ever known, a time of great destruction, a type of death, time of death that will be nothing like anything we've ever known. And then after the end of that seven years of tribulation, Christ comes and sets his feet upon Mount Zion. And when he does so, he establishes the reign of Christ over all the world for a thousand years. Peace will have been established. Satan will have been bound and cast into the pit. The Antichrist and his false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And for a thousand years, men will live on this earth, replenished earth. Everything will be wonderful. Everything will be new. Everything will be just perfect in every way. Men will live longer lives. If you read the book of Isaiah, you find that if one dies at a hundred, he'll be considered a child. Those are all going to happen. We may not experience any of that in this day. I'm sure that we won't because we'll be out of here. I'm convinced of that. The rapture of the church is going to come suddenly like a thief in the night. We will be taken home to be with him. And we will then be with Christ and all those who have gone on before us. My dear friend Neil will be there. My dear friend Jay will be there. Bob will be there. Oh, how many more. We all know them. We all miss them but they profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. So where are they? They're not in purgatory. They're not in Hades. They were Jesus. They were Jesus. Where is Jesus? The Bible tells us plainly. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
And there's coming a day when he's going to be standing up once again at the Father's command. Go get your bride. The time is now. When he does so, you and I, oh, what a wonderful blessing to know. The blessed hope that you all have is that blessed hope of his return coming in the clouds and saying, come up here. You will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. This mortal will put on immortality. We will no longer be in this body that is vile, wearing out, failing miserably. We will no longer be confronted with sin, with death, with pain or sorrow, tears. We will no longer be having to deal with the various things that so trouble us in these hours. Oh, people of God, let them know. Let them know. 